The Equest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Equest Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the Equest Podcast, do make sure to hit the subscribe button and also like and share with your pals as well if that's what you want to do. We'd like that very much. For this episode of the Equest Podcast, my guest is Jerry Brady. Now, Jerry is, uh, I guess, an elder statesman of the funds industry here in Ireland, and I have cleared it with him. He said that's okay for me to to say. Uh, Jerry is somebody who has vast experience of the Irish industry, right back to its conception and its early days in the late eighties through to today. And he has certainly views on all of that that he's willing to share, and, and gladly does so in this episode. So we chat about the early days of the financial services industry in Ireland, what it was that. I guess, attracted firms to come and establish funds in Ireland and how the various government agencies worked together to try and grow an industry uh, uh, out of, as Jerry describes, not knowing a fund from a hole in the ground to being one of the key international financial services centres or the domicile of investment funds. So we chat about that, but we also look forward, we chat about the current Department of Finance Fund Sector 2030 consultation or review that they're performing and I guess some of the some of the risks that exist for the industry here that could cause us some speed bumps in the future if we're not very careful to keep our eyes open for them. So with that, as a very interesting and broad-ranging conversation, let's get on with the show. The Equest Podcast. Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, Jerry, and welcome to the Equest Podcast. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Great to be here, Danny. Thanks for the invitation. Am I allowed to call you a, an elder statesman of the Irish funds industry? <laughs> Does that go too far? No, no, no. Sadly, the last time I looked in the mirror, I got a shock. So, yes, you, you may do so. Well, without getting too misty-eyed, Jerry, how do you look back on the, the funds industry here? Because I guess a little bit like peace in Northern Ireland, people who've grown up with a generation who have only known peace. You, in, here in our industry, you've people who've only grown up knowing there being a funds industry in Ireland and a financial services industry, but it wasn't always like that. No, I I think, you know, we're going through testing times at the moment with the general housing situation and so on. But, you know, the Ireland that I grew up in, the Ireland that I started working in, the Ireland that I left in the late 80s was totally bankrupt. And we were in a vicious circle that I believed we would never get out of. And I left Ireland to to work abroad with the hope I could get back. But, you know, the back of my mind was the fear that that just wouldn't happen. And the marginal rate of taxation in the late 80s was 72.5%. Wow. You had 65% PAYE and then PRSI 7.5%. And the astronomical level of taxation that a young guy would pay his government 72 and a half percent was 8,500 Irish punts. So it, 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 it was an appalling situation that we were living in. We couldn't keep Irish people in the country, let alone attract non-Irish people. And I really didn't believe that we would break out of this vicious circle. We had borrowed in all these low interest rate currencies like the Swiss franc and the Deutschmark. And after every draconian budget, when we totted up the boots, we were worse off than at the start of the financial year. So that was kind of the backdrop to all of this. So I'm working for this great financial institution, Bank of Bermuda in Bermuda. And I'm hearing 
talk about something called an international financial services center. Did you think somebody was pulling your leg, Jerry? Like, I I guess, no, I, I, I took it seriously. You know, Ireland PLC worked so well in those days. It still probably does today. But, you know, we, we recognized we were so far down the pecking order that first and foremost, we had to sell the jurisdiction. Then we could look at maybe getting some of the business for ourselves. So we always worked very well together. I remember Guy Pat Tolan in the IDA, who I I was friendly with, would visit Bermuda and other places every so often. So I, I, I kind of bought into it. But, you know, it was just like one of the many initiatives that, that you hear bounced around from time to time. Like, you know, until I left Ireland to join Bank of Bermuda, I wouldn't have known an investment fund or a mutual fund from a hole in the ground. You know, international treasury operations was like pie in the sky. So we were a very domestic type of country, of economy, very inward looking. So international finance had just really passed us by. But it sounded good. And I got in on it at an early stage with loads of other Irish people working abroad. And and the thesis was brilliant. Like, you know, loads of countries had gold or oil or natural commodities. We, and to this day, we still uh, produce young people, babies. We we had very high birth rates and we had a good educational system. So we, we tried to get our children educated to come through the, the system and then come out of college with no work. So the, the basic issue and problem we had, despite our, our abundance of this magnificent resource, young people, the primary prob- problem we had was a hemorrhaging of educated young people leaving the country. So the IFSC was conceived to stop the hemorrhaging of uh, educated young people. Everyone else was benefiting. We weren't. We'd educated, fed, watered them, got them to a certain stage. Then lo and behold, they left us. And I guess the other objective, and this is where Customs House Development, the IVSC got its name, was the regeneration of the inner city. So those were kind of the twin driving forces. And it all made sense. You know, we didn't, uh, it didn't make sense for us, even in those days, to try and compete with low cost jurisdictions and heavy manufacturing. And what we needed to do was to leverage of the fact we had a young population and an educated population and if you kind of looked around, your financial services seemed to offer the, the best option. So I, I kind of bought into it. I, you know, I don't know at what stage I crossed that line, but I bought yeah. into it reasonably early on. And, and, and what were the agencies involved in kind of conceiving and, and then pushing that idea and telling the world about it? I have to say, as always, we are so well served by one of the most magnificent marketing organizations in the world, the IDA. So the IDA was was very prominent in in this. And, you know, the IDA at a very early stage could see the benefits of moving from its Shannon free development manufacturing type scenario to to potentially setting up something on on international finance that would, would maybe have more of a Dublin focus and a West of Ireland type type focus. But. The funds industry, I forget the various iterations we went through before we got as far as Irish funds, but the fund industry itself as a group worked together. And 
you know, the great thing about the international funds industry is we have these conferences all the time. And generally, they're not in Bournemouth or Isle of Man. They're in Monaco or they're in New York or they're in Palm Desert. They're in lovely locations. And from an early stage, the two driving forces would have been the sort of the emerging funds industry, international funds industry, the various practitioners, the audit firms, the law firms, and the IDA. Like I do recall a wonderful guy in the IDA in New York. He would be at every conference, but we'd only see him at the coffee break because the budget was so tight that, you know, it, that there wasn't a budget to attend all these high-priced conferences. But he would be there at every coffee break. And it, it was a great team effort where we were really, really trying very hard to show that there was an alternative to to Luxembourg, because clearly around this time there were uh, there was legislation, regulatory reform. So it's fine uh, for Ireland to embark on this, but really there were a few forces that came together at the same time, which which worked to our advantage. The uses yes. legislation, you know, unit trust legislation, which we passed in Ireland, but essentially it was the uses legislation. And why we was that a happy accident, Jerry, or was that? By design that the usage directive which came 85 into force 89 and the irish funds yeah, yeah. center that they coincided yeah. in time yeah yeah like the 87 was the creation of the ifsc 89 the the unit trust legislation 90 i believe was the usage so it, it all happened around the same time i do believe it was a happy accident like the story i've been told and i believe it is that there are, you know, there, there are loads, you know, in my opinion, the architect of the Good Friday Agreement is John Hume. There are loads of other people that deserve credit. But if I were to to, to kind of look at it, I, I would attribute it to John Hume. So creation of and success of the IFSC, the story I've been given, we've got to think um, beyond the box, beyond the traditional Shannon Free Development Manufacturing type approach we've got to look at services and financial services would probably offer a great opportunity to our uh, for our young people and hopefully offer them opportunities to stay in Ireland rather than than go abroad for work so uh, Dermot Desmond conceived the International Financial Services Centre to his credit and you know sadly you know there are black marks there as well but to his credit Pahi was that politician, stubborn politician who, who said, yeah, th- this is a good idea, we, we'll go with it. And as I understand it, I wasn't in Ireland at the time, faced ridicule in his own party, let alone the opposition and the media and so on. And then there was an individual that I had the great pleasure of working with for many, many years. He, he, he served on the board of Bank of Bermuda in Ireland, Porigo Higin who is the most astute or was the most astute businessman that I have ever come across. And he was a hard-nosed civil servant that knocked heads together. And I was regaled by many stories from, from Parig of those days where, you know, we had massive inflation, massive unemployment, massive, as I said, taxation and immigration. And the story Parig would tell me of getting the three parties together, the government, the business, the unions. So, you know, the unions would say, look, we, we want inflation is 
17%. We need 10% wage rises. And Barry would say, look, you're getting 3%. And the employers would say, well, that's, that's, you know, that's a more reasonable approach. That's great now, but we're under extreme pressure now. There'll be layoffs. And Barry would say, there are no layoffs. And the government said, well, look, we've got to go back now and check this with all the various departments. He said, no one's leaving this room until we all agree. Now, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a yeah. point. But this, you know, these stories that Barry would tell me of those days were quite clearly everyone's interests were pulling in a different direction. But the country was bankrupt. And unless there was drastic action, and that was, you know, the, the, uh, the foundation of the, the pact that we have, the social understanding and so on, between all the constituencies in, in the country. And we all pulled together, we gave a bit and we, we, we got a bit. So it, it to me, uh, you know, what has happened in Ireland, and clearly Europe as well, and pouring money into Ireland and giving us this IFSC tax status recognition, you know, 10% tax rate, there are a whole host of factors that came together, but it is a remarkable economic success story. It really is from a country that was truly bankrupt, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a remarkable. And as you think back and, and reflect, are there any kind of milestones that were hit on the way that really gave the industry a boost, let it find its feet and then and then grow into what it is today? There may be, um, Danny, none kind of come to mind. Like I, I do... You know, when I look back at the growth of our industry, you know, we had no tradition history of international finance. We hadn't a, a bull's notion what was happening. Now, there were some things that, that were sensible that sadly we ended up shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, we live in a populist, democratic world where, you know, everyone believes they have a divine right to offer their opinion and to determine the future direction of government and so on and so forth. But uh, in order to get this off the ground, we needed expertise. And who in their right mind is going to come to Ireland to pay 72.5% tax on a Mickey Mouse salary? So how are we going to get all these experienced leaders of international finance to come and help us? And we had this thing called the remittance basis of taxation, which made perfect, perfect sense. So I'm a a non-Irish national and I'm being attracted to Ireland you know, I want to set up a nice home in Ireland, send the children to school in Ireland, go out for meals in Ireland. So I want a good salary in Ireland, which sadly will be taxed in Ireland, and I'll pay that tax. But the rest of my compensation and bonuses and so on, as a non-Irish national, as long as that was paid outside the jurisdiction, was not remitted back to the jurisdiction, it wasn't taxed in the jurisdiction. So to my mind, that made perfect sense then, makes perfect sense now, but we repealed that legislation a while back. But that certainly was a big, big factor in us securing the services of these uh, experienced leaders of of business that came to the outer uh, edges of Europe to uh, to help us set up this fledgling international financial centre but in all of that, in the early days, we were seen, I suppose, very much as a little bit of a tax play. You know, that's always helpful, but a more sort of a, a back office service center where we these uh, educated uh, young people that, that had no experience, no insight into the industry. So it had to be led, had to be trained, had to be managed. But the thinking in, in, in a lot of instances was don't let these guys get in front of the clients. 
So what we'll do is we'll, we'll have them in a back office. We'll call the back office Ireland. And with technology and so on and so forth, you know, we'll, this will work to our great advantage and won't everybody be happy. But what happened, Danny, was remarkable. Like one thing about the Irish is, by and large, we're not shy. By and large, we can have a conversation with a stranger. By and yeah. large, our interpersonal skills are very good. And clients being clients and keen to know what's going on and so on and so forth. As time went on, clients expressed an interest in doing more in Ireland and liaising more with Ireland. And their experience of Ireland was really, really positive and good. So we evolved from being this back office support center and not to be seen or heard into more of a client centric, client facing servicing center. And so I, I think that transformation, but I think that evolved rather than, you know, there, there being a big bang at some stage or a big event. I think that evolved, you know, and I think it's, it's underscored our tremendous success. Like you recall, uh, even in your, uh, in your youthful years, you recall minimum activities where the great uh, fear <laughs> yeah. was that, look, why are we doing this? We're doing this to stop emigration. We're doing this to stop the hemorrhaging of young People So under no circumstances, if a client believes that, look, we're going to go further from having a Cayman Fund service in Ireland to setting up um, one of these new usage type funds in Ireland and maybe tapping into European distribution, we're, we're going to set it up in Ireland. And, and the regulator and the government and business working hand in hand said, that's great. That's exactly what we want. That's the next stage of our development. But we want, you know, everything now serviced in Ireland with the exception of custody. So all the kind of inputting for NAV production, TA work and so on, all had to be done in Ireland. But as we became more and more successful, as the more and more funds launched, you know, did it make sense to have overeducated, overpaid young people inputting when we could be controlling and managing the process and also freeing us up to have more of a client-centric role. So I always believed, before we eventually got rid of minimum activity, I always believed it had its day and we needed to move on. But it's getting me back to the point that I I think all generalizations are wrong, but if, if I'm bold enough to make a generalization about the Irish people, I think we're particularly well suited for client-centric, client-facing roles. And I, I, I think that aided the development of the, of the Financial Services Centre for sure. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like my, the minimum activities rule served a purpose for a while. And then ultimately, I think when use its four came and, and the management company passport became effective, then that kind of was the end of the minimum activities rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our admin done here when, when a man go put passport and do it from another jurisdiction. But it's interesting how the journey evolved. And I guess it... It doesn't sound like, you know, when you, when you think about the thousands of people that um, work in the industry now, the households around the country that have bread put on, on the table as a result of the industry, that success wasn't inevitable. No, it wasn't inevitable, nor is it guaranteed into the future, because I have strong views on that as well. You know, we had to work really hard. You know, I do remember the condescending comments that we would get from 
the audit firms, the legal firms in places like Luxembourg and so on that, yeah, you know, they're interesting lot, the Irish, you know, they will get up to speed eventually. But, you know, if you want the Rolls Royce uh, of the industry, you go to Luxembourg. I remember reading some reports that were, were just unbelievable. I remember going to New York law firms and, you know, making all the arguments as to why Ireland was the natural, obvious choice to domicile a new usage structure. And, you know, the word processors that uh, the firms in those days had, had Luxembourg at the top of the prospectus. And even though, you know, they, they were sympathetic to the arguments, and the hardest thing in life is to change the status quo. It's like a big painter yeah. type ship to change course take, takes time. So we had to kind of plug away and so on. But you know, fundamentally, again, all generalizations are wrong, but fundamentally, the international investment funds industry is an English-speaking, Anglo-Saxon, common law-type industry. And, and, you know, we tick all the boxes. So once we established our credibility, once we were able to demonstrate the infrastructure was there to attract, to retain, to service the business, to my mind now, I'm even more bullish and more uh, strong on, on the view that, uh, you know, Ireland is uniquely placed to capture the, the, the lion's share of the international investment business if it, if it plays its cards right. So we had to overcome the status quo. We had to overcome, although those days were, were fading very quickly, you know, offshore UK was uh, Jersey, Guernsey, the Channel Islands. So we had to, like anybody flying in and out of those places, will realize why Dublin became so uh, much of an attractive uh, alternative. But we had to overcome kind of the preconceived notions as to how you deal with international uh, investment business. It wasn't guaranteed. And, you know, it's a tribute to all of us who were there from the start, who were plugging away at conferences uh, business development trips and and essentially was selling Ireland PLC first and then everything else. Now, I'd also have to pay tribute to our listing agencies, the uh, Davies and the NCBs, because, you know, when I started talking to people sometime uh, in the early days about funds, business in Ireland, say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've been doing business in Ireland, it's great, and so on. And when I drilled down, they weren't doing anything. All they were doing is getting their funds listed in Ireland. But even that act in itself just opened up Ireland, uh, a market that should be investigated maybe a bit further. It was a foot in the door. So I do recall the pioneering work being done by our listing and NCB in particular. And on the back of that, working really hard to, to, to get Ireland off the ground in those days. Yeah. And so we've looked back for that part of the, the chat Look forward then, we have the Fund Sector 2030 review from the Department of Finance. So they're obviously looking forward to what does the future hold for the funds industry here in Ireland and how do we bring the various stakeholders together to maintain the current position and, and hopefully grow and develop it. What do you think about the, I guess, before we look at the review, the, the key risks to the industry here? What could go wrong? Yeah, it, it, to me, it's like the British car industry. When I grew up as a young lad, the British car industry was was by far and away reviewed or uh, considered to be the, the premier car industry in the world. 
And and the British people and British management believed that and they sat back on the laurels and now it's gone. So in business, but particularly international business, you've got to keep running to stand still. Nobody deserves, uh, you, know, you know, you're not guaranteed a living for life. So you've got to earn it. And you're only as good as, as the next piece of business that, that you win. So we've a really good foundation, a really good reputation. We have a lot of good infrastructure factors working in our favor. But unless we show a hunger to continue to reinvent ourselves and to, to try and win that next piece of business, we will be replaced by others. You know, I, I, there's no guarantee that we will continue at the forefront of all of this unless we continue to put in a huge amount of effort. You know, if I um, look at, so the risks, the risks obviously are our complacency and good enough is good enough. You know, if I look at the inordinate, inordinate amount of time it took to enact legislation on the ICAV, which is now the vehicle of choice for corporate uh, vehicles on, in the international investment funds industry, it's almost criminal how long that took. If I've almost given up on investment limited partnerships, eventually we got a little bit of the investment limited partnership legislation passed. But there's so many iterations of that legislation in Luxembourg with the RAFE, unregulated investment limited partnership with regulated entities around it in the industry. The industry does sorry, not Sorry, Jerry, you still. dropped out there it's for a second. Sorry, did you, can okay, you hear me? I lost you for a bit. Yeah, I've got okay. you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good um, old okay. So, um, so no, you, you were saying about the, the registered yeah. AFE in Luxembourg. Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying that, you know, okay, we eventually, eventually uh, enacted uh, uh, investment limited partnership legislation here. But, you know, um, how many iterations, how many updates have we had since then? You know, Luxembourg has gone through so many iterations of their investment limited partnership legislation. They have the RAFE product, which is particularly well regarded by the international investment community where it's an unregulated product but with regulated entities around it and you know we need to be reinventing ourselves and looking at this all the time if we're going to stay relevant so the concern always Danny is that good enough is good enough and that look you know what we'll focus as a government as an industry our our attention on other areas Um, you know every partnership that goes to Luxembourg we've lost X percent of a job. But when you multiply that by the hundreds or the thousands, that's a lot of jobs we've lost directly and then indirectly everybody that feeds off that as well. So I I would just like to see that urgency come back again into trying to, with this world-class industry, this with this leadership position we've attained, to recognize it's not set in stone. We've got to work real hard trying to maintain that and even improve that going forward yeah i think you're right i think there is complacency is the is the, the danger um and the sense that well we have an established industry so we don't need to work as hard at being innovative and, and staying ahead of the curve and i think particularly when you think about the icav act and the amendments to the investment limited partnership what strikes me about them is they're both really structural pieces of legislation they're about how funds are structured they're not about the risk that goes into funds. They're not about how funds are sold. They're not about consumer protection or um, financial stability. 
they're just about whether you structure your fund as a corporate, as an ICAB, as a, an investment limited partnership. So taking that long to get through a legislative process when you're not talking about those kinds of risks is, is just, there's something wrong when that happens. And I think that, that you're right in saying that that's something that needs to be looked at. This needs to get more priority. And yeah. across, across all of the political parties, you know, it's one, you know, you need to understand better where the risks are that you need to worry about and where the risks are you need to worry about as much. And that, that this is the kind of stuff that really is the just the, the mechanics of how the industry works. That, and it is important that this stuff gets through government and gets through the legislative process and gets through efficiently. Because as much as anything else, and you mentioned the jobs that go to other jurisdictions as a result, it's also the tone that it sets and the, the tone that it allows to be set here and abroad if there's a perception that actually the focus and the care and attention that the industry used to get is no longer the case. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think that was very well, Danny. You know, the analogy I would draw is, is with our planning authority here, which just seems to be not fit for purpose. So similarly, I'm not seeing, and, and you know, I, I'm just seeing politicians being politicians, quite frankly. I'm not seeing a real commitment by anybody to our industry. There are not enough votes in it. There's not enough social media comment on it. So I, I'm just totally cynical with the process. It could be and it should be a lot better. And you know what? If we neglect it, you know, in the years to come, our industry will not develop uh, in the way it has over the years. There'll be others who quite rightly will be more hungry, working harder, that will do better than us. So, so we've got to put, we've got to continue to recognize that we're in a wonderful position. Let's not, let's not lose this position. Let's not be like the British car industry from years gone by saying, aren't we wonderful? Isn't Ireland great? Look at all those wonderful educated people, but not reinventing ourselves to, to make sure that that continues to be the comment that we receive. Yeah, I think you're right. You said about running to stand still. You're right. If, you, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. There is yeah. standing still. And just said, you know, for our listeners, in case anybody isn't familiar. So in April, the Department of Finance published the terms of reference for review of the fund sector of fund sector 2030. And the intention with it is that it will be a collaborative effort between the Department of Finance, the Revenue Commissioners and the Central Bank of Ireland, where they have identified a number of themes that they're interested in investigating further as they think about what the industry looks like today and I guess what they would like it to look like in 2030. So part of it is scene setting and understanding the impact that the industry has at the moment, which is fine, I guess. It seems, to my mind, to cover the ground that, that say, Irish Funds does in their Indicon reports. But perhaps the department feels like it's important that they have their own verified source of that, which is the brother. Mm. And then it looks at some of the more technical sides. They talk about developing capital markets, and they're talking about, from a taxation perspective, looking again at things like REITs and Irish real estate funds. And ultimately, then, they want to make recommendations on these areas so as to promote, this is what they say, so as to promote open markets, resilient markets and developing markets in Ireland in the years ahead. So I guess broadly it's it, to be welcomed that they are carrying out this study and that they're focusing in those areas. Sure, sure. And what do you think then is a good outcome for the industry when this review is done? It'll take about 12 months, I'd say, maybe a bit longer. It is quite ambitious and will require different stakeholders coming together. But, you know, when this gets done, what do you think a good outcome is? Yeah, you know, I guess I I listen to all the uh, good intentions. I listen to all the well-produced reports and so on. 
And I take it with a pinch of salt. You know, ultimately, I like to think I'm judged by my actions and I definitely <laughs> judge others by their actions. So really, you know, what we need to see out of all of this is not setting up endless committees, not doing endless reviews, not producing endless papers, but, you know, essentially uh, action plans with short term uh, outputs so that, uh, you know, in five years, we may all be dead and 50 years we'll all be dead. So uh, in two years is, is a long time. So what I think is, is that, of course, we need a plan. We need a framework. We need a vision. And all of this is really, really good. We need to turn the good intentions into actions. If you're going to give me a deliverable in two years, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, focus on other things because to me, the time scale is too long. Now, if it is a big project and realistically it's going to be two or more years, that's fine. These things happen. But there are going to be short-term deliverables along the way to give me comfort that what you're doing is credible and that we are proceeding along a, a route that will ultimately deliver the goods. I, I just think that complacency is the enemy of progress of continued progress you know we want to have that hunger to continue to improve to continue to innovate to continue to reach out and we need to demonstrate by our actions that we're doing this you know i i'm a great believer that you can read all the works in the world about academically and theoretically why this went wrong or that went wrong or this didn't happen or that didn't happen like you know who's done the post-mortem on the icaf why in God's name did it take so many years? How do we ensure that that will never, ever, ever happen again? Who's done the postmortem on the investment limited partnership legislation? How do we ensure that that never happens again? So I think part and parcel of credible planning ahead is to acknowledge where we have dropped the ball, where we haven't delivered, where we haven't done what we should have been doing, but lightning does strike twice. I believe that very firmly. Lightning does strike twice. Unless you do that forensic analysis of how and why you're disappointed these things didn't materialize the way you would have liked them to have done, uh, you can rest assured that they will happen again. So yeah. all of this is good, Danny, but we just want to turn it into something that's you know, credible in terms of action. That's action that, yeah. that will change our lives, not words. Yeah, I think from my perspective, I know industry will often say, well, we'd like certainty. We'd like to know that the rule book is settled and we can plan around yeah. it. We can, yeah. And we can use that as our basis for what we're going to do for the next period of time. And I think, personally, I think that's unrealistic in a way, because generally when it comes to rulemaking, rulemaking is a reaction to something usually that's either gone wrong or there's been an innovation. So the only way the rule book stays the same today and in five years' time is if there have been no new developments, no new risks, and no misbehavior. And that's, ideal, you know, certainly in the last one, you'd hope that doesn't happen. But these things happen. That's just, that is the, the nature of the business. People are trying to innovate, do things differently. And that introduces risks next year that maybe we didn't have this year. So the rulebook will change. But I think the messaging that the, the key stakeholders on the uh, government side are coming together to, to look at this and plan forward is good messaging. But I think you're right. I think we need to, where there are deliverables, they need to deliver quickly. And I think when it comes to legislation, particularly that is about 
the structure and the foundation as opposed to the key uh, investment or investor protection risks. That really should be something that everyone can prioritize to get through quite quickly. It doesn't have to be slog that we've seen uh, for other pieces of legislation in the past. And I think that sets the right tone for yeah. the future, that it is something we're serious about, you know, continuing to grow and, and foster and be very careful uh, for and of. That's my take anyway, Jerry. No, no, I I, I agree. I agree. There's lots of conti- constituencies in there. And, and, you know, we have to be realistic in a political world in which we live and so on and so forth. It's just, it's like everything in life, Danny. It's got to be balanced. So uh, good intentions, good planning, good reports, all, all of that's important. But let's not lose sight of turning that into action. And if a project is big, that's fine. But let's focus on the short-term deliverables to make sure it's credible then in terms of delivery dates and so on. Well, we're coming to the end of our chat. uh, And I know we've chatted about the review and the risks and what could go wrong for the industry, but you're a pretty positive guy. So let's wrap up on your take for the next kind of immediate future for the industry here. I guess you're pretty positive about what can be achieved. I am. I think, you know, we maybe stumbled into this incredible industry that I've been fortunate myself, most definitely, to have stumbled into international financial services. I just don't see any end in sight. I I think there is wealth accumulation, capital accumulation, and a big piece of it will want uh, to find a home in the international financial world. And I think we have a world leadership position. I think we are in a very, very fortunate position. Uh, we've, you know, at least another generation that has come through since I started out. And these are people that most definitely do know a mutual fund or investment fund from a hole in the ground. They are really talented, uh, well-versed to participate in all aspects of the industry. I do believe that we cannot take anything for granted and I do believe we've got to continue to get out there and to give positive messages and so on and so forth. I do feel ultimately it's the quality of the service we provide so servicing is key. I'm not a great fan of the current situation where people work at home at their own choice and so on and so forth. Um, I think we've got to be real careful determined if that's having an impact on the way we service our business, if it's having an impact in the way we grew, grow our future managers and talent. But ultimately, you know, technology has served as well and it's servicing us in this industry too. But, you know, I, I think a contented client is a key objective here. and We've got to make sure that we win the business to begin with, but then we retain it by a quality servicing and our uh, client-facing skills. So I'm, I'm really positive about the industry, Danny. I think unless we shoot ourselves in the foot, I, I think we're just going to continue to go from strength to strength. The real issue is, are we going to achieve our full potential? And to do that, we've got to get real hungry again about the, the boundaries that we set and the targets that we set. Gary, I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a while now, so you've not let me down. Well done. Thank you very much for, for guesting on, on the Quest podcast. You're very welcome, Danny. It's always good to talk. Uh, And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Equest Podcast. We'll catch you next time. The Equest Podcast. Funds industry conversations.